Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. Uh, welcome. It's uh, Pentecost, as was mentioned. Uh, always an exciting day. One of my favourite days because, in a sense, you realise that your gathering here today is actually part of an ongoing process which began 2,000 years ago that was sparked into happening by this moment, this incredible moment in history. And so we gather to remember that. And we do that in the context of a series which we started last week. Uh, Britt and I sort of uh, did a little bit different. We shared. We sat on, um, actually, we, we sat on the chairs in this 9 a.m. service uh, but then we changed up to the stools in the second uh, 11 service because we just felt we looked too relaxed and we we're getting too relaxed. Uh, so uh, you experienced the very relaxed version of that. But what we looked at was this idea of what does it look like when we talk about renewal and what does that look like practically? Often we can have these words which are very idealistic and they point to a future state that we desire, but it's often hard to put that into concrete terms. What does it actually look like if a church is renewed? What does it actually look like if an individual is renewed? At a time when this word renewal is bouncing around the world at the moment in the church, there's a sense that renewal needs to happen. What does that actually look like? And how does it not just be something which remains in the air like a floaty cloud that never comes down to earth? And the metaphor that sort of felt led into was this concept of wells. I shared last week, if you were here, this thing I discovered when I was in London just a couple of weeks ago, that underneath many of the great churches in London, actually wells, that the initial Christian communities often gathered around these wells, which are used for baptism, which are used for healing. And this idea that underneath the floorboards, often there are wells. Wells are places where you find water, where you find life. And so renewal as an image is actually digging deeper into these wells, which are often under our feet. And what I want to talk about today is essentially captured in a sentence is this, that when you see a culture of renewal happening, when an individual is renewed, when a church is renewed, you see a culture of worship develop and grow. If you want to see what it looks like in the real world, you can notice a profound difference in the culture of worship. I visited a church uh, a number of years ago, which is a church that I've ministered to in another country lots of times. And uh, the first time I went there to when I went there the last time, you could see a profound change in the culture of worship, how people sang, their attitude of their hearts. It was manifest in this very physical way, which was a tangible thing that you could notice. I remember the first time I went, uh, I just noticed that there was just this sort of malaise. In fact, the person who was worshipping, who had the culture of worship, really interesting, was actually the, the senior pastor who I just met, and they led me in. And I remember thinking, and just captured this image of so this general malaise of apathy across the congregation. And I remember this image of the pastor on his knees just worshipping. And then when I went back, like I remember about five, six years later, going back to this church and seeing that attitude that was modeled by that pastor then throughout the entire congregation, like it, was, it was incredibly moving and you could not but help but come into that space and feel that God was doing something in that church. And that's actually continued. So it's a real marker of when God is tangibly doing something in a place. 
So in order to sort of dig into this, to link it to Pentecost, I'm, I want to end with the story of Pentecost, but I actually want to sort of take us back because I think many of these elements we see in the Pentecost story. And to do this, I want to sort of go back to a pattern that we see in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the books of the Bible, which come before the New Testament. And I want to go back to actually something that David, King David does. King David was a king who ruled Israel, and he was given the throne at a time when you did not want the throne. Occasionally in politics, political parties will go, we don't want to win the next election because if we win the next election, we know there's a recession coming, there's a war coming, there's a bunch of problems, and we would prefer the opposition to be in power and let them mess everything up and get all the blame, and then in a few years, we'll actually go for uh, the role. That happens with individuals. Sometimes individuals are like, I want to be president, I want to be prime minister, and I'm just going to wait until everything gets a little bit less crazy and the bad stuff goes away. Michelle Obama, we see you. Uh, just waiting in the wings there. That's a hot tip. Hear it from me. Write it down. Uh, five years. Let's just see what happens. Um, uh, chat about that at lunch. Um, <laughs> there's this sense where you, wanna, you don't want to inherit a role when a bunch of bad stuff is happening. But this is what happens to David. David comes into an Israel which is in an absolute disaster. Israel's been defeated by her enemies, the Philistines. Their king... Saul, which began with so much promise, filled with the Holy Spirit, Spirit coming on him, is actually gone into a terrible, corrupt regime and on the battlefield has taken his own life. And this is symbolic. The king was symbolic of the people. For this to happen, it's not just a personal a tragedy for Saul. It's a tragedy for the whole nation. And so David comes into a disaster but it's a disaster that is multifaceted. It is a political, social, economic, and cultural disaster. But also, it was a theological, spiritual humiliation. Because for the king to die, for Israel to be defeated by other nations, the Philistines, who deliberately would try and humiliate the God of Israel, this was an attack upon their faith and everything they believed in. So with David coming into this role as king, how was he to press into the renewal that he'd experienced in the wilderness? A lot of the Psalms are written in the wilderness. How was he to press into this renewal of his nation to help others experience, like the pastor I talked about at the beginning, what had happened in him? How was he to then let this go out throughout the people? How could David partner with God to turn this crisis around? Well, what does David do? David does something that is counterintuitive. David doesn't build a bigger army. David doesn't build a bigger bureaucracy. David doesn't build alliances with foreign states. What David does is actually builds a culture of worship. Now, we see this beginnings of this in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Having taken power, coming into Jerusalem, it says this in 1 Chronicles, David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds. And they said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is the will of our Lord, our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our people throughout the territories of Israel and also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. 
What is going on here? What is the ark? The ark is one of the holy things that sat in the tabernacle and it symbolized the presence of God. What he's saying here is a culture of worship which David builds is actually built around the presence of God. That's a key, key thing to understand. When we worship, we're not just sending out songs or praises or prayers or the attitudes of our hearts to the outer reaches of the universe, to a distant God. No, we're actually worshipping with the presence of God who is close and amongst us. And so worship is then the posture that we adopt for God's presence. Worship is a response to God's presence. So it's not just a thing that we do while people are dribbling in at the beginning of a service where we get ready for the announcements and the sermon. Worship is actually, in a sense, the normality of the human being who was created by God in the garden to live in his presence. When we do worship, we actually go back to what we were always meant to do. Now, what's really interesting when it comes to renewal or revival or awakening or the different scales of how God moves amongst the people, one of the great debates is, does God just bring it and there's nothing that we can do? What is God's sovereignty versus our role in renewal? And different authors will emphasize one over the other. This is one of the most common questions that comes up. What's true? God is the one who chooses when he comes and blesses someone. If God withdraws his presence, he withdraws his presence. This happens to Israel. God will pour his spirit out when he wants. In Pentecost, we hear Jesus saying to the disciples, wait in Jerusalem. And they wait to the moment where Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, pours the Holy Spirit out on the people. So it is on God, but there's also a role that we do play. One way to understand this is that uh, you can invite someone to dinner and inviting them to dinner, you can prepare the meal, you can prepare the hospitality, you can put the porch light on, you can get the right food, you can set the dinner table, you can put the ambient music on, get the temperature at the right uh, level, you can invite some interesting guests, make sure the kids have cleaned up, whatever you do to, to do hospitality, maybe just order Uber Eats, whatever it may be, there is a role that you can play. Now, at the end of the day, your guest can choose whether they turn up or not. Your guest has a sovereign choice as to whether they will show up at your house. But it's actually an interplay. This sovereignty is God's as to whether he shows up. But what we are called to do as humans is to actually create a space to host the presence. And that's what a culture of worship being built is all about. Now, what I want to do is I just want to capture three things. I'm going to look at the story of David, and then we're going to look at the story of Uh, Acts, uh, the story of Pentecost in the book of Acts, about how this culture of worship is built. Now, there's a really interesting little detail in the passage that I just read, where it says, let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. Now, what had happened, there was a period during the war that Israel was having with the Philistines, where the Philistines stole the ark and actually took it back to their lands. They placed it actually in a temple, which was a sign of we've defeated the presence of God. The Israelite God, this God Dagon, has actually defeated the God of Israel, which they see represented as the ark, that Israel doesn't have an idol, so they grab the ark. That's what they grab. But interestingly, at this point, 
the ark has actually been returned to Israel and it's been neglected. So you could understand if the ark had been captured and Israel couldn't worship because they really wanted to worship and they then captured it and brought it back and then worship kicked off. But actually something more concerning has happened is that really the ark, the presence of God has been sitting around neglected. It's actually sitting in a guy's house called Abinadab. He's actually blessed by it, but it's like everyone's forgotten it. And this illuminates one of the dangers when it comes to worship is that the biggest threat to worship is neglect. The biggest threat to worship is not that someone has captured our worship, stopped us worshiping, often in the church, and it certainly happens at certain times in certain places. People are prevented from worshiping. Uh, I shared last week that I spoke at the leadership conference in London um, a few weeks ago, and one of the speakers before me was a lady who had planted a church in a North Korean prison. And she was physically prevented from worshipping. These, these Christians in, the, in this prison were prevented from worshipping. They were in prison because they were Christians. And so there was, I mean, you can imagine what a North Korean prison must be like, where they would actually have worship. Their worship services went for about 12 minutes. That's about all they could get away with. And they would do it in the latrines, in the toilets, because the smell was so overpowering, the guards didn't want to go in there. And so they would line up at the toilet and worship sort of very quietly under their breaths. And if someone got in the line, they'd be like, oh, you go first. And they would stop their worship, let the person go to the toilet and go back. Now, that is an example of being physically persecuted and prevented from worshiping. And that does happen to people in certain times and certain places in history. But the real danger that actually what this scripture is telling us is actually the real threat to building a culture of worship is actually passivity, neglect, ignoring, forgetting, absent-mindedness. That's really the threat. And what's happened to Israel is they've ignored the presence of God who is wishing to dwell amongst them. So the first thing is pursuing the presence. Pursuing, going after the presence of God. David makes this decision to actually go and bring back the presence of God, the ark from where it is at Abinadab's house. So the first thing you need to do to build a culture of worship is you have to make a conscious decision to move out of passivity and say, I'm going to go for this. God can do it. Only God can pour out his his presence. But we have to have this. It's like a dance. God's leading the dance, but we have to choose and make an active decision to go along with his dance and follow his lead. The second thing, is hosting the presence. The ark is the symbol of heaven and earth overlapping. Scripture talks about the ark of God, symbolizing the presence as a kind of footstool. And you've got this image of God's feet resting on the ark and his body in earth and his feet in earth and his, in his, in his sort of top half of his body in heaven is sort of the, this understanding. So there we got the first thing, going after the presence. The second one, hosting the presence. Now, interestingly too, is that what you will find is that often hosting the presence will happen on contested ground. There'll be a kind of contest that often comes against because often ground is contested. So I just want to say to you straight up that when you choose to move into building a culture of worship in your life, when we choose to do it in a church, that there will often be opposition. The opposition can come from the powers and principalities that don't want to see God worshipped, 
but also it can come from your own flesh. We like, oh, I don't know. Like that's what was actually coming against Israel. It was, yes, they were being attacked by the Philistines and they were attacked by these people who were following an, a foreign god, but also really there was a sense that their own flesh just could not be bothered. They want a foot in the world, they want a foot in the church, and it led to this neglect of the presence of God. So in contrast to this, when you press into hosting the presence, when you realize that you're going to do that in contested spaces, what you realize is hosting the presence of God is actually an attitude which shapes an atmosphere of welcome. Some of you here are incredible at hospitality, just gifted. You love to make spaces for when people come. Some people might be on the food side. My family has been blessed in the last couple of weeks by people who are blessing us with the ministry of hospitality by bringing meals and dropping things off. So thank you. There are other people who are just great at conversation, making someone feel welcome. They're just aware of, oh, I'm at a party, but no one's talking to him. I'll just connect them with that person. Other people like to think of the right soundtrack on Spotify. You've got soundtracks, you've got playlists on Spotify in case people come to your houses for different moods. Party one, quiet jazz evening. And ultimately, at its core, what hosting is, if you look at the roots of the word, it comes from this concept of serving. And so worship is an act of serving. It's saying that the presence of God is with us, and I don't want to just act like I would act if not, I'm not hosting. When you're not hosting, you don't care. I know you're sitting there, you're, not, you're just know, having a, I don't know, a pot noodle or something uh, in your tracksuit pants. It's a different posture than when actually you're hosting people. Maybe you do host people with pot noodles in your tracksuit pants. But... Really what it is, is I am going to comport myself in a particular way which actually serves who is coming into this space. And that's the essence of what worship is. The third thing that we see is partnering with the presence. Partnering with the presence. We go after the presence or pursue the presence. We host the presence. But then we realize that when the presence is here, the presence wants to do something. It's really interesting, Isaiah, uh, in the beginning of his great prophetic book, has this passage where he talks about God's just frustration and anger at the way that people are coming to worship. God speaking says this in Isaiah 1 verse 12, When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? If you think about a trampling, think about if you create a beautiful garden for your neighbors to enjoy, for guests to see, and then a bunch of people just walk all over it. They're physically present, but they're doing it in this way which is not hosting. It's, it's not respecting. It's just trampling. It's like a bunch of people just coming in and just trampling. Later on in Isaiah, it talks about a different kind of attitude towards God, to worship, and it says this. It says, these are the ones, this is Isaiah 66 verse 2, the second part of verse 2. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Building a culture of worship is moving from just a trampling on Sunday morning, I'm here, what's happening? Oh, it's got some cobwebs up there, whatever. Uh, you know, to actually an attitude of trembling and not a trembling that comes from a negative space, but this sense of realizing that you are in the presence of God and your heart attitude is attuned to him. So how do we do this? How do we do these things in practical terms? Well, the first thing is David builds a culture by going first. 
David builds a culture by going first. We read that as David is then welcoming the ark back into Jerusalem, he's gone after the presence, and now he's showing the people how to host the presence. And it says this, David wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. A couple of things in this. Sometimes it's sort of misconstrued that David was rocking around naked. It's not that he was rocking around naked. Really what he had done, he'd actually taken off his kingly robes. And kingly robes would have been pretty impressive. Kingly robes said that you were top dog in that, in that nation. And he's taken off these kingly robes, which gives him this tremendous sense of identity. And what he's then done is put on the robes of a priest. They're sort of the undergarments, if you like, of a priest. Now, this is really interesting because what he's doing here, he's saying, I'm going to put down my pretense and I'm going to put down the one thing that puts me above all of you people. And I'm actually going to put down the identity that actually my culture says that I have because the real important thing is not about my identity. It's actually about God's identity. And he puts on the robes of a priest, which is this mediator between the people of God. The second thing that he does is he dances. And he dances in this way, which is clearly... He's not worrying about what everyone else thinks of him. So often we like to have a social hierarchy. In a room, there's social hierarchy. We are so into egalitarianism, firstly, as Australians. Secondly, that's our culture's thing at the moment. Equality is massive. But there's always social hierarchies going on. Who's the smartest? Who's the best looking? Who's got the nicest shoes? Who got the best seat in the room? There's always hierarchies happening in any situation. It's just how humans are sort of built but what David does here is he almost is like going after that hierarchy by, first of all, taking off his identity. But the second thing that he does is he dances in this way where he's clearly not worried what other people are thinking of him. Now, one of his wives, Michelle, who's actually the daughter of uh, Saul, is so upset by the way that he, he enters into this, this moment of hosting the presence of God that she complains because it actually embarrasses her because she's connected to the king. And when he does that, what does that say about her? So what he says to us is that when you go after a culture of worship, in a sense, no matter what context you're in, it's going to look upset your social, cultural context a little bit. There's a sense where, in a sense, you have to step out of both yourself and, in a sense, you have to step out of what your culture's expectations are because they're not being set by them. They're actually being set by God. So what this means is that worship is where our heart is brought into alignment with God's heart. Not with our culture's heart, not with our view of the world. It's actually where our heart is brought into alignment with God's heart. And what a culture of worship is, is not just when an individual is doing this, but a community of people who do this together, spurring each other people on. I think David does this, not because he just wants to be some mystic by himself going through the countryside doing his dance. He's actually doing this as this prophetic act to actually build something to show the people how to worship in a particular way. Now, he takes this to another level. Now, think about it. This is the guy in charge of the whole nation. There's agriculture to do, taxes, looking after the poor, all of that stuff, which he puts his hand to. But look at the culture that David sets up. First Chronicles 16, verses 1 to 6. It says this. They brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. After David had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. 
He then gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each Israelite man and woman. He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord, to extol, thank, and praise the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and next to him his rank was Zechariah, then Jezeel, Shemaroth, Jahil, Mattiah, Elab, Benahiah, Obed-Edom, and Jalil. Thank you very much, people. They were to play the lyres and the harps. Asaph was to the sound of the cymbals, and Benaiah and Jezeel, the priests, were to blow the trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Then all of the people left for their, their own home and David returned home to bless the family. What he's doing up here is he's setting up a continual 24-7 atmosphere of worship over Jerusalem. He's putting at the center of the state, this place that he's leading, the center of everything, he is putting the worship of God. And he, through dancing, but then setting up these structures, has created this atmosphere of prayer and worship and offering and giving to God. And he's saying, this is the center thing which is going to define us. Yes, we need to do agriculture. Yes, we need to do diplomacy. Yes, we need to work out who's going to dispute over the wall that's fallen over there between those two neighbors. But the center of things, he's putting the presence of God. And then you see it go into the fact that they then leave and they go home to their families because this is also going to happen in their homes. There is an overflow of this. It's not just something to come to this religious place. It's also then to go back to where people live. There's an overflow to this. Now we see this in Pentecost. What we see in Pentecost is almost the same framework being built out. First of all, we see a pursuing of the presence. It says in Acts 2 verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. This shows a proactivity. Acts 1 verse 14 says, They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. A culture of worship before the Spirit falls at Pentecost and empowers them is already being established. Jesus has told them to get together and wait. And so what they're doing is they're doing their side of what this dance is. They've created a space where They're waiting on God. They're praying. They're worshiping. They're choosing to gather together. They're doing this as a community of people. And so they're preparing. They're pursuing, going after the presence. The second thing is when the presence falls, one way you can define the early church, and I think you could define the church now, is what the church is, is a group of people who are hosting the presence. The disciples become the church, the people hosting the presence together as a communal way of life. This is what defines the church. Listen to this. In Acts 2, verses 42, it says this. Once the Spirit has fallen, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. This is what hosting the presence looks like. There's a lid there. Three, we see them partnering with the presence. It adds then after that, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
The will of God is that the presence of God goes to the ends of the earth. And one of the ways that God does that, as people filled with his presence, the presence amongst us as the church, is when we go and share the good news to the ends of the earth, from your workplace to whoop whoop, that actually we take the presence with us. God wants to partner with us. And so the vision that God has for us is a people partnering with Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. And you see this in all kinds of scenarios. This is not just when things are good. We always see this. If you read the New Testament, read the letters, read Acts, you see that what marks the early church is a culture of worship, even when people like Paul and Silas are in prison. They're worshiping. They're singing. They're ministering through taking this posture. And while Colossians 3 verse 16 says this, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. A people experiencing renewal will be a people where the culture of worship begins to change. When people who don't have faith come in and go, I don't know what just is going on in that room, but something's happening and I feel drawn to it. It's a place where you come and no matter what week you've had, you all together focus on Jesus. This is not just a thing. Our society is so based on good feelings and we love events and we love the festival or this or that or the football game when your team's winning and we're based on good feelings. We're not good at when bad feelings happen. But this is the culture that you actually build even when sometimes it's difficult. As continually happens, anytime you write a sermon like this, so often you're presented with doing it yourself. And so for me, when I first wrote this sermon, I thought, you know, how do I be that pastor I talked about at the beginning and, 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 and model this in my own way in church? But for me, that's not actually how this week played out. This week played out and was shared at the beginning of what we're going through as a family. But for me, this week played out in praising and, 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 and praying with Trudy when she ended up in hospital, which is where she is now. This is putting worship on in the car when we're driving here with the kids this morning after what's been a really tough week. This is just praying each day that God goes ahead of me and that I can host his presence as I'm washing endless amounts of clothes encouraging, disciplining, praying with my kids. It's building a culture of worship. This is what we're called to do. And in the midst of the challenges that Lydia outlined at the beginning, financially, what's going on with Trudy, everything, God's building something. And one way I just want to really just want to, I'm not going to have three points of how to integrate this. I've got simply one point, and it's this. Are you... If you want to be on board with this, if you want to be part of what God's doing, when it comes to building a culture of worship, hosting the presence of God, going after the presence of God, partnering with the presence of God, pressing into renewal, are we going to be a thermometer or a thermostat? A thermostat is, and you may have a battle in your home or a battle in your workplace. There was an episode of The Office about this where there tends to be battles over what level you set the temperature, particularly in winter. And when you set the thermostat, whether central heating, whatever, split system, whatever form of heating you have, 
Most of them you can set at, at a certain temperature. People like it at different temperatures. There's like the 19.5, uh, the 21, the 22. Uh, if you're a psychopath, 28. Uh, whatever you like, maybe you like it cold, 17. Uh, and you set it. And when you set the thermostat, it will then take the temperature up to that. Thermostat sets the temperature. The thermometer simply is just something which reads the temperature. It says it's, you know, if you put a thermometer in your mouth or you measure it in your room. So this is what it is. I was for many years when it came to worship, when it came to being in a place, I wasn't even thinking of it for a host in the presence, to be honest. I simply, I think, had a thermometer mentality. I would come in and go, oh, worship was pretty good today, or, gee, that was a bit quiet, or, eh. And what I realized was that I was actually just simply being reactive to whatever was going on. But what I realized that God was calling me into, and I think it's not just a thing for me, it's actually for everyone, is actually, am I going to just measure the temperature and say worship? It's all like, gee, it's really quiet today. We need to press in at this moment. And actually, I'm going to worship with all my heart like David and sing with all my lungs. And not just when it's in church, but actually maybe when you're in a really difficult time or perhaps you're at work or perhaps you're by yourself or at that moment where you just ask that question, guys, is it right if we pray? They actually set the temperature. And I think one of the definitions of when renewal happens is when a bunch of people empowered by the Holy Spirit stepping forward decide to actually be thermostats and set the temperature. So we are going to worship now. And we're going to worship and we're going to sing a new song. Can I just tell you, sometimes when new songs happen, you get this sort of like, uh, uh, I don't know the words, and where are we going, and what's this tune? I wish I'd heard this before on YouTube, so I knew how to sing, and I'm making up words. And often we can just sort of let it happen. What if actually we saw new songs, and the band can come up as I've set this up, but if, if, what if we actually saw new songs as opportunities to learn a new way of responding to God? We're going to sing a new song we're then going to do communion in an attitude of worship. We're then going to sing another song. But can I just invite you at this time, like I think God is inviting us to build a new culture of worship. And can I actually invite you to step into this time, not as a thermometer, but as a thermostat. Let me pray. God, we want to host your presence. We want to confess that sometimes we've left the ark at Abinadad's house and we've neglected you. Maybe even, as I did, I think, for many years, just saw worship as a few songs before the sermon where my mind would be engaged. God, we don't want to just have our minds engaged. We want to have our hearts aligned with you through worship. And we just welcome you, Holy Spirit. You are here. Jesus died on the cross. The curtain was torn from top to bottom. Your spirit has gone into the world. Your presence is here. It's with us. It'll be with us when we go from here. And God, we want to just, just confess that at times we've trampled your courts. We've been present physically, but not, in a sense, spiritually. And God, we just want to come to attunement now with your spirit. So we pray, come Holy Spirit. We want to, we want to go after your presence. We want to host your presence. So we just welcome you to this place now. We, we prepare our hearts. We acknowledge you. We put down our identities, our worries, our our social expectations. We put them down on the ground now and we actually say, welcome Jesus into this place. 
And God, we want to partner with you. So we just pray that you'll minister to us as we now worship with you and we stand in the place and being in your presence, our glorious King Jesus. Let's worship. Thank you.